We have been, the last is our third week in a four-week series on salvation. And the first two weeks, we took a look to say, let's look at this salvation narrative that we have, first in the Old Testament and, at, and see how it spreads into the New Testament, and look at the whole arch of salvation and the ways the word salvation and its derivatives are used throughout the Bible. So we looked at... Um, last week in the New Testament. So what are we saved from and for? And this week, I know sometimes we, we always hear the, the words, and they are so true, that Jesus died to save us from our sins. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. But what does that mean, and how does that happen? And so we, we ask the words, Jesus saves, but how? And there are many different theories of how Jesus atones for those sins, and we're going to take a look at that today. And I wanted to let you know that the things that I looked at, I didn't pull all of this off the top of my head. This is, I, I really had to work hard on this. And so um, the works that I, some of the work, I consulted a lot, but the, word, the works that I used the most were um, a book called The Essentials of Christian Theology, edited by William um, Placker. But particularly, I, look, I looked at essays by Robert Jensen and wonderful work by Leanne Van Dyke. Um, so that was there. And then I looked at a book called The Nature of the Atonement, four different views. It took four different people's views on the atonement and lets them argue with each other, and that was fun. And then uh, a book called Atonement and Violence, A Theological Conversation. Does the atonement have to be violent? And so there's some work in there too. As always, the Interpreter's Dictionary, the Bible, and the Anchor Bible Dictionary are fabulous sources because they use present scholarship all these different great minds, and they smush them all together in a condensed form. So I go there. And last but not least, um, two of my favorite professors from Perkins School of Theology, notes taken way back when from Dr. Billy Abraham and Bruce Marshall. I've got a, about a notebook this thick from their class that I consulted in this. And so anyway, as we talk about salvation and the atonement. How does that happen? What does Jesus do for us that makes that happen on the cross? So the cross of Christ is, we all agree, is the center of our Christian faith. We see crosses everywhere we go. It is the symbol of our faith. And yet the precise saving effect of the cross, even when you read the Bible, sometimes it's not really clear. There's so many different voices telling us what that means. And it's often remarked by historians of uh, doctrine that while the doctrines of and the arguments for the Trinity and even for Christology, meaning who is Christ, um, that all of those were sort of settled in those early ecumenical councils like the Council of Nicaea. But guess what? There has been no settled doctrine developed with respect to the cross. And I really think that's kind of a good thing. Uh, the church as a whole is really a, a reflection of all of the different voices in the New Testament. And the church has drawn these generous boundaries then in regard to the Christian understandings of what does it mean when we say that Christ died on the cross for our sins. So we have a lot of voices in the Bible and a lot of people outside the Bible trying to interpret what those things mean. And so each of those voices provides us with a really valuable window in which we can look into the workings of atonement. 
And so we're going to take a look at some of those voices, not all of them, but some of them today. The actual word atonement is an English word, um, atone, and it's derived from a phrase, at one. Makes sense, doesn't it? To be at one, of course, with someone is to be in a harmonious and personal relationship with them, as in uh, Jesus' praise to the Father. May we be at one. Um, atonement then originally meant at one month or reconciliation, and so that's where we get the term. And it's surprising, so, or we might say for our purposes today, atonement is, we're going to speak of that as the process in which the hindrances to our being reconciled in relationship with God are um, kind of removed or overcome. And it's, I think it's really surprising that in the Old Testament, the word atonement is used rather frequently. And it's really absent from the New Testament. We don't see the word atonement in the New Testament. And yet, the meaning behind it is constantly present. It's there all, all over the place. And so there are lots of different understandings of the atonement. There are more than 10 views of the atonement in the New Testament. And we are going to take a look at about half of those today. And there, there are many more, but we're d we only have so much time. And so today, we're just going to take a little brush stroke across those. And so as we look at each one of these uh, views or voices on what, what the definition of the cross means and what Christ did on the cross, we're also going to look at, uh, in within our culture and theologically, what could be some problems. When people talk about, they say, wow, I kind of have a problem with that. We're going to look at what some of the pro problematic features of those are, and then also some of the positive features or some, some ways to overcome the ob objections of what are there. The first one that we're going to talk about is sacrifice. And um, as you all know, in the Old Testament, there's a large sacrificial cult. In Old Testament Judaism, the sacrificial cult included provisions for lots of different kinds of sacrifices, not just for sin. It included, you would give uh, thank offerings, and of course there was offerings for Passover, and to give thanks for God bringing the people out of bondage in, in uh, Egypt. But of course, one purpose of that elaborate sacrificial system in the Old Testament was to provide for atonement, or in Hebrew, kippur, atonement. And the Hebrew word kippur means to cover up or to wipe away. And so we translate that in English as atonement, that God is somehow wiping away that hindrance to that our relationship with him or covering our sins. And so, as you all know, priests would uh, make sacrifice for the sins of the people and that so that they would be forgiven of their sins. And especially then on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of all the people. So there was one day in which all the sins collectively of the community and the high priest would be dealt with. And what happens on the Day of Atonement, or what happened then, was that there would be two goats, and one would be slain as a sin offering, and we see that in Leviticus 16. Aaron, who was the high priest, shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and offer it as a sin offering. So you've got one goat that's going to be killed and offered on the altar, and the second goat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement so that it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azazel. I don't know where the wilderness of Azazel is, but this live goat, what would happen is the priest would 
lay hands on the goat, symbolically transferring the sins of the people in the community onto the goat, and then the goat would be driven into the wilderness, and so that's where we get the term scapegoat. The goat goes wandering, trotting off into the wilderness, carrying away the sins of the people. So, um, so we've got one, uh, one sacrifice is uh, a goat slain, and the other, the goat's carrying away sins. But not all sacrifices, as we said, have to do with sin. And one of those, uh, as you all know, the Passover sacrifice, celebrated and commemorated God's act of liberating the people of Israel at the Exodus, liberating them from slavery and bondage to um, Pharaoh. And so that was a, a sort of a peace offering, a thank offering. As, and as you know, during the Passover, uh, the blood of the lamb was spread on the doorpost and the plague of death passed over, passed over people's homes who had the blood on the doorpost so that they might live, the firstborn would live. There was also, in the Old Testament, sacrifice which was accompanied the ritual of making a covenant. And so we're going to see all of these ways that we just talked about sacrifice present in the way we speak of Jesus as sacrifice for us and our sins. And the first of these we see in Mark. Jesus is at the Last Supper, and these are the words. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them. And all of them drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So here we see Jesus' sacrifice both as death, this is my body, the breaking of his body means he's going to die, and of his blood. But also we see this as a making of a new covenant, the new covenant. And then Matthew uses these words, but he adds after he says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, and he adds, for the forgiveness of sins. So we see that Christ then is offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Then Paul says these words to the Ephesians, and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we see here this imagery of sacrifice. And again in Hebrews, unlike the other high priests, he, meaning Jesus, Jesus has no need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own, for first for his own sins and then for those of the people like the high priest would do. This he did once all when he offered himself so we see here that Jesus uh, is not only the high priest he's, he's acting as the sacrifice and the high priest and he's doing this for all people and then John said this is John um, they're speaking of John the Baptist and he sees Jesus coming towards him the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he declared here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here we've got an idea of two of those ideas. The Lamb of God would be the Paschal Lamb. Well, the Paschal Lamb wasn't given for sin, 
right? The Paschal Lamb was in celebration of this release from death and bondage from Pharaoh. But he's using, he's combining two ideas in here with the Paschal Lamb. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And of course, as we already said, the Paschal Lamb's not a sin offering. The blood goes over the doorpost to avert the death plague from the house of Israel. And then because of that, they are released from bondage. Okay, so there's a few little problems with sacrificial imagery, or that some people say. One, it seems sometimes to fail to capture this volunteer, voluntary character of Christ's death. And it also seems to suggest, some would say, that Christ is a human sacrifice, which God never demanded. So they'd say, what did God demand a human sacrifice to wipe away the sins of the world? Some people say that's kind of a problem. Also, this model appeals to animal sacrifice. If you, if you are from a culture where, as we all are now, where animals are not sacrificed, and this is sort of belongs in the past, is it hard to make a connection? Is it hard to relate to an Jesus as an animal sacrifice? And this model also, sometimes some people say it doesn't really show how humanity is involved in the sacrifice of the Son of God? Is this just a transaction between Jesus and God? And what, what does humanity play, if anything, in that role? On the flip side, others would say, well, according to this model, Christ, as we've heard, is both the high priest and the victim. Therefore, his death is a voluntary act. It's, it's a self-giving act. And so it's not a human, it's not this required human sacrifice. It's something that Jesus does voluntarily on our behalf. And according to Hebrews, we're getting past the animal sacrifice thing. Animal sacrifices were replaced once and for all by the sacrifice of Christ. And so that wipes out that cultural piece of problem there. The logic of sacrifice even though we don't do animal sacrifice now is still though understandable because we can understand that sometimes you need to have a, a little bit bigger offering or a gift when apology is just not enough anybody who's brought home flowers will understand that right <laughs> right um, or taking someone out to dinner or what can what can I do to make it up to you when I'm sorry is not enough um, and so the idea of some sacrificial giving is understandable, even though we're not talking about animals. And so in terms of how do we involve people, what's humanity's role in this? While we would all say, just as we did in when we were talking about salvation, that all of that initiative comes from God, that the reconciling initiative comes from God, Christ's death has no efficacy in our lives unless we choose to participate, unless we choose to uh, recognize that sacrifice and accept that sacrifice and, and offer and dedicate our lives to God and, and live into that sacrifice. So then a second, a second um, theory of atonement is what we call recapitulation. And I don't think we ever see that in the Bible. It's not, it's not a biblical term. Uh, and now, and the, the obviously the sat, the, the, the sacrificial model was used by the early church fathers and so and and even today recapitulation uh, some proponents of that were um, Arrhenius uh, who was the bishop of Lyon and uh, died in 202 so around the third century and fourth century 
Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, who, by the way, was at the Council of Nicaea. So he was a big proponent of recapitulation, which we're going to describe right now. The whole idea is that the Word, or the Logos incarnate, reforms in his life the death and his, his life and his death and his resurrection, the history of humanity. So it's humanity is recapitulated. And the whole idea is this. Christ redeems human life by passing through all of the stages of life that we have gone through. He becomes the second Adam, who, like, just like Adam, is conceived without a father. And he is tempted, but unlike Adam, he does not succumb to those temptations. But he dies like Adam, but unlike Adam, he rises from death. And so humanity is, because Jesus has recapitulated that life and has lived our life in, per, in a perfect way, then humanity is restored to its original pattern of living. And we see this in a few places in uh, Paul. See, Paul, is, Paul uses almost every one of these. So Paul says, for since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a human being. So death, for all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus lived the life that we led, but he did it sinlessly. He was fully human and fully divine, and so the human part of him had to live just like we do. Now the problem with this is that it doesn't show how humans partake of, of the benefits of Jesus having recapitulated our life and, or um, of the redeeming action of God. But on the other hand, um, it can be viewed in the context of such uh, church practices as communion with Christ in the Lord's Supper. We can identify with Christ in his sufferings, and when we go and take communion, we become part of Christ and he part of us, and so our lives are recapitulated. Um, we can also say in this that God restores our human nature to what it should be, not by wiping it, wiping it clean or destroying it, but by entering into our dirty, ugly human existence and transforming our inclinations towards sin and our desires by doing all that from within. Now, a third model is what is known as Christ the victor. Christ overcomes and ransoms. He, Christ pays the price and ransoms us from sin and death. And some of the proponents of this come, again, go way back to early church fathers, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, Augustine. This model, Christ the Victor, is very popular in the East, in Eastern Orthodoxy. But we've seen a lot of growing popularity in this model in the U.S. and in the West today, in the last 50 years. I think you'll hear and listen to some of these terms, and you will hear, probably you've heard this language on people's lips before. So this is this language of victory over the power Victory over the powers of sin and death and victory over the powers of um, cosmic forces. So the New Testament, in the New Testament, in this language of victory over powers, assumes sort of a, a dualistic view of the universe with 
other spiritual powers holding sway over the human race. And so what you get in this idea is that, obviously, we all know this from the story of Adam and Eve, that by free consent, humanity made itself captive to the powers of evil. Um, And as a result, humanity lies in subjection to demonic powers. That's That's how the story of Adam and Eve would be translated. That the serpent is really... The devil. So humanity is held as a bond slave of the devil. Sin is a demonic power in w- which assaults humans both from within and from without. And that Jesus comes, the Son of God comes into the world in order to bind up the evil one. And he, because Jesus leads a sinless life and does not succumb to these evil temptations, then he offers himself to the devil, so and the devil accepts the life of Christ as a ransom for humanity held in bondage. So in this model, in Christ the victor, salvation is seen as liberation from the dominion of Satan and evil forces and evil powers, and it also uh, brings us into the acceptance of Christ's lordship. So I know that we've all heard this, right? You've all heard this translation of what this means. And here's where we see scriptural evidence of it. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then John says, everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil. And the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And so that is where this comes from. We also see Paul. See, Paul weaves all of these in. He doesn't leave one of them out. You were bought with a price. That's a ransom. Not to become slaves of human masters. Now, in this, Paul isn't talking about demonic forces. But, again, this idea of us being ransomed or bought with a price. And, of course, in Revelation, we see this idea. This is in John's vision. Also, another book was opened, the Book of Life. And the dead were judged according to their works, as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And all were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This, then death is destroyed. So, do you think there's any problems with this view of atonement, of Christ the victor? There are are a few. One is that it presumes that there is demonic powers and that the devil exists. And for some people, that's a problem. Also, who's the payment going to? If I'm ransomed and you're bought with a price, is the payment going to God or is the payment going to the devil? And people have argued for both. And so if the payment or ransom is to the devil, then that means that it entails that Satan has rights upon human beings, but God doesn't owe anything to the devil, right? Um, And then a third thing seems that it seems to attribute all responsibility for human evil to uh, cosmic forces, satanic forces, or to the devil. That we have no responsibility for our own actions, right? You've heard Flip Wilson back then, the devil made me do it. That it's all, it's, it's not my fault 
it's totally comes from that this temptation comes from without and so there's there's a problem there also this seems to leave humanity out of this cosmic battle with demonic forces that it's just this battle going on between God and demonic forces and humanity is just kind of waiting on the sideline to see what happens and so also if, in what sense did Christ conquer the devil and if humanity continues to sin after the resurrection so it, it sort of kind of leaves the resurrection out of the picture too okay, but here's some positive observations of, of uh, Christ the victor the devil had limited rights over humanity since humanity has freely submitted to a demonic or a, a, a force outside themselves. Also, for those who would reject the idea of a literal devil or Satan, a, a more modern interpretation would be that we have subject, subjected ourselves to another lord and in the Bible, and that might be the serpent, and that serpent could represent things like temptations that come from the outside, temptations for power, temptations for wealth, temptations that take, to take, us, that take us into violent action, that all of that would lead intrinsically to death. Because of our choices, that leads us to, uh, to a way of life that causes death. Because in those choices, in offering these other aspects of powers in our life, making that our Lord, it cuts us off from God, which is, of course, our only life source. Um, Christ the victor affirms this freedom of choice is a crucial part of the model of salvation. And God does provide humanity an instrumental role in that choice. God wants us to freely choose God, and we do have a choice in that. Also, the model exposes, I think, quite clearly, it takes very seriously sin, and it exposes this really addictive nature of evil and inclinations and temptations, which, as anybody who's had, any of us would know, sometimes is greater than just a, a mere force of habit. We can't just sometimes will ourselves to do things. We've really got to have the help of God to do that. So it takes all that seriously. And... Some would say that Christ's life, death, and re resurrection are an important part of this model because his life of obedience, his death is as a ransom, and his resurrection allows Christians to share in that victory over, over powers. And as Paul would say, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. A fourth model is um, known as satisfaction. And again, we don't see a lot of that. We see a little bit of satisfaction language in the Bible. So in spite of this loud, there's a, a large chorus of voices in the tradition concerning the cross, some of the voices we've already heard. But the one voice that has dominated in the Western world, and that'd be us in, um, on this side of the pond, was began by... Um, a man by the name of Anselm, and he was the Archbishop of Canter Canterbury uh, in the 11th and 12th century, and he wrote a book called Why God Became Human way back when, and he proposes this idea, and it's not, he doesn't quote any scripture, so I'm not going to give you any scripture on this, but this is his argument, that divine justice is reflected in God's unchangeable moral order. We'd all agree God is moral, right? And that that, that is 
it's unchangeable. So then what that means is the essence of sin, we, what makes sin is humanity's failure to render to God obedience that's rightfully due them. And when we sin, when we fail to be obedient, what we've done is we have offended God's honor. And God's honor must be compensated. And so it's humanity's responsibility to restore to God what humanity has robbed from God, right? If I'm, if I'm the one who's in debt, I need to pay the debt back, right? And so satisfaction requires that this debt be paid. But we're, we're in a predicament. And you know what that is? The satisfaction can only be made by a human, right? Because humans cause the problem. And since it's humanity that owes God the debt, and yet no human has the resources to make satisfaction for the human race. It's kind of like the, um, I know you've all had children who came to you and borrowed money from you or got money from you so they could go buy you a present. Right, <laughs> You know, it's like it all belongs to God anyway. So everything that we have is due God. Our piety, our praise, uh, our affections, our, our obedience. And nothing we can do can pay that back. And so the solution, the sole solution, is found in the mystery of Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully human. So as God, Jesus has the ability to make satisfaction, right? And as human, this satisfaction can be made on behalf of humanity. So in this, what happens is, the argument is, it was necessary for God to become human so that our sins could be atoned for. It was necessary. So being sinless, Jesus is exempt from the punishment of death, right? Because he didn't sin like Adam. And the Son in agreement with the perfect love uh, of the Father, offers the Father the gift of his blameless life on our behalf, a life that he didn't owe, and the Father accepts the gift on, uh, for the satisfaction of humankind. And so in this model, it's the honor of God that is the target of the death of Christ. And so, like I said, Anselm's argument it's grounded in, in a theistic view. It's grounded in the Bible. He doesn't appeal to Scripture, which is one of the reasons, it's one of the problems of, that people would say. Um, it, and, you know, and we've all, all asked this question, too. I know we've all asked this question. It, this subjects God to moral law. So, like, well, why can't God simply pardon offenses without satisfaction? I do it to my kids all the time, right? <laughs> right? Um, so that's one of the problems. The second, of course, we said is he doesn't use Scripture. And it appears to depend on this uh, a medieval honor code. During the feudal system, honor code was everything. And so this is sort of what, where Anselm has hinged this, that we've offended God's honor and we have to make restitution for that. And it, again, it seems to make the resurrection irrelevant. But there's no talk of the resurrection. So some positive observations of this is that the moral law is an expression of God's character. And mercy without justice is indistinguishable from arbitrariness, right? So the sin and the sinner at the feet of God is the same. If, if there is no moral just judgment, right, or if there is no moral law, we're all the same, it doesn't matter. Um, and so God's character would say, no, there has to be a difference, and there, there has to be something has to ha be done about sin. 
and so the even without this explicit reference to scripture, what Anselm is trying to do is just prove that the atonement was necessary. It was necessary for Jesus to be born and to for God to come and rescue us. And it would be unfitting for God to do otherwise because he's moral, right? For God is moral. And so, the, and again, this concept of, of dishonoring and offending, even though it was a medieval concept that this is hinges on, we can all relate to that. We've all offended someone's honor, and so we can understand that. Um, also, the good thing about this, it appeals to two uh, theistic presuppositions. There is a just God. That God's not willy-nilly. God takes sin seriously. Um, and that human happiness is absolutely impossible without the remission of sin. We can't live full lives as we were supposed to without remission of sin. Another good thing about this, some say it's good, is that Anselm dismissed uh, part, at least the part of the ransom model by denying the rights of the devil. He takes, he's like, it, this is all about God and humanity, and it's less about evil powers. Does that make sense? Okay. So we, we, we take, we're still on this satisfaction model. But what happens with the Reformation, we've, we've moved out of a feudal system and out of this big honor code, and we come into, so what, what happens is in the change in culture, there's a change in this image of what satisfaction means. And there's a gradual shifting from the feudal system and honor codes and it gives way to the emergence of a more political society, a society based on the notion of law and a new expression of satisfaction became, it morphed into what I think we're probably most familiar with in, uh, in um, evangelical circles and that is penal substitution. The idea for the reformers uh, like Luther and Calvin was that Jesus' death satisfied the divine law's requirement that sin be punished. Because, you know, with the coming of the law, we are now aware that we're sinful, right? Paul says so. So now, instead of God's honor being the object of Jesus' death, it's God's law is the object of Jesus' death. And so in that because we've broken God's law, we have become enemies of God, um, and we stand under God's righteous judgment. It's now we're, we're thinking more in terms of law, and God is a righteous judge. And guilty sinners, of course, know that they're sinful because they know about the law of God, and they find this condition intolerable, and they're aware that their own efforts are not going to save them. They need help. And so Christ achieves atonement by suffering our punishment and the righteous wrath of God. Here's the wrath word that we talked about last week. Instead of sinners, instead of us. Okay, so humanity's found guilty, right? The gavel falls down, guilty. Humanity's guilt is transferred upon Christ, who becomes the greater sinner for us, the greatest sinner for us. So Christ becomes sinner on the cross, and Christ's righteousness is then given or imputed to us. The whole the idea of this comes from the old 
beginning of it comes from the Old Testament and Isaiah 53 from the suffering servant passage. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. So the idea is that all of humanity's sin is heaped upon Christ. Christ becomes sinner, and we are acquitted. And in this, in this formula, faith is the conviction and the knowledge that Christ died for the sins of the world, coupled with this deep repentance um, and this hope for forgiveness so that we turn to God and ask for, ask for forgiveness and receive that. So sinners in this model are justified by faith. We've heard that a lot. That's kind of what the Reformation hinges on, that sinners are justified by faith in Christ bearing divine judgment for them, not by works of piety. So you can see where this was working off uh, the Catholic model kind of as, a, as a, uh, an aside from that. Um, and salvation then is seen as liberation not from uh, powers, but from the demands of the law. That we are not subject under the law, we have the law written on our hearts through Jesus Christ. Now the, good, the psychological outcome of this is that um, in a, uh, the atonement provides for peace for the afflicted conscious, this release of guilt, relief from anxiety over one's salvation. We can be assured of our salvation, so to speak. And so we see, again, boy, Paul just has it all over the place. Paul has all of these woven in his, uh, in his scriptures. In Romans 5, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. So God's grace is, is heavy here. But God proves his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified, there's that justified, okay, in court, remember we talked last week, justification means, it's a, it's a judicial term, we are made right, we are seen as uh, the penalty being paid, we're made right with God. Uh, since we have been justified by his, in, by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And then 2 Corinthians says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay. There is a, there's even problems with this penal substitution model. One, it contrasts the attitude of the father, like we said last week. Does this mean that the father is all about wrath and the Old Testament's all about wrath? It contrasts the father of wrath with the son of love and mercy. And we, again, we saw last week uh, uh, that we saw plenty of grace abounding in the Old Testament. And so also within the context of this judicial analogy, it, it strikes us as odd that an innocent person would be punished, Right? instead of sinners, and so that's hard to explain. Um, some positive observation is that 
it accentuates Christ's action on our behalf and also our complete inability to achieve salvation apart from Christ. We, we again, we can't pay the price. Uh, we're guilty, and someone in is coming in and, and taking, taking the heat for us. So the model also makes faith and the experience of forgiveness central to our atonement and our salvation. And it highlights the view that humanity is, of course, is void of moral discernment and of independent of divine grace. All right. And in these arguments, because there are still questions, what about this whole wrath thing? And some, some denominations would really focus on the wrath of God, and they would say that Christ, uh, Christ offering was a, and here's two weird words, propitiation or was it expiation? And just very simply, we're going to just do this in a nutshell. Uh, should the sacrifice be regarded as propitiation, which means appeasing? Are we appeasing an angry God? Is Christ appeasing an angry God? Or should it be seen as expiation, that Christ's death nullifies the effects of sin? See the difference? Are we appeasing an angry God, or is Christ's death nullifying the effects of sin. One argument says that the New Testament does not think of Jesus' death as appeasing God's anger or that we could look at wrath as being this total, total outpouring of love of God, of allowing us to go our own way because God prefers that we choose God and choose love because God can scarcely be said to propitiate himself <laughs> in any meaningful sense. Rather, God through Jesus, this is, this is um, the thought, that God through Jesus deals with and nullifies sin and its effects. And one modern criticism is that it appears that this reconciliation is not attained without punishment or violence. Can, God, can we be reconciled to God without, without blood without, or without horrible violence being done to someone? Is the violence the reason for our sins being forgiven? Some would say yes, that, that God, God demands it. But here is one, there's many, but here's one adjusted modern view. It's that Christ was the bearer of our sins, that we were made, he was made to be sin. But in, in this sense, in the sense of his absorbing the burden of our sins, not that he became our sins, and not in the sense of substituted punishment. It'd be that the sin, all of our sins are what killed Christ, that our sins cause the death, that he absorbs our sins and overcomes, that in his death our sins die with Christ, and that in his resurrection he overcomes that which is the worst in all of us, and so then so can we through him. Does that make sense? So there's another view. So, going back. So, that Christ is the bearer of our sins in the sense of him absorbing the burden of our sins, but not in the sense of substituted punishment. Um, but the Son is satisfaction for our sin in his life and death and resurrection. And through all of that, Christ satisfies God, not just in his death, but through the way he lived 
and died and was raised from the dead. So Jesus satisfies God by being God with us in human form, in his, in his obedient life and his willingness to drink that cup of death as an inevitable, inevitable consequence of his obedience and in bearing the sins of the world in his body and spirit on the cross by absorbing the burden of our sins and death and overcoming them in the resurrection. Okay. Thus, he invites us to participate in his birth, in his life of obedience and communion with the Father, in his passion and his death, in his victorious resurrection and reign in the kingdom of God. This is all tied to God's kingdom. So this gives more emphasis to God as a loving creator rather than the wrathful judge. And God still requires sin to be dealt with, but justly maintains a moral and governing role. Does that make sense? So, although the, to close, we'll say the, the New Testament, even though it has lots of views, more than 10, about the atoning work of Christ, and we've only looked at five of those, and they're many and varied, but what was and what is central was the experience of forgiveness and new, and new life. That's, that's, the, that's the message. We don't, sometimes we don't need to know the why. The why is less important probably than this has happened, that we can experience new life and new life in Christ. This was the work of God acting in and through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And common to all of these views was the claim that what happened in Jesus Christ is of universal significance and was the work of God acting in love to reconcile us to God. We are atoned. Thanks be to God. Next week, we're going to look at John Wesley's role in all of this and his, what he calls the scripture way of salvation and how he looks at some of this. 